You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. I've been standing out the back in that little dark corner with my iPad holding it up here, making faces, trying to distract the musicians. But they were so professional, they didn't, they didn't move. They didn't even give me a glance. Well done, guys. Well done. Hey, look, just for a moment, just for like 30 seconds, can I be that annoying grandparent? Can I? Can I? Because we had another grandbaby just yesterday. I think, I think there might be a picture. It's sort of like when I was putting my sermon slides in, maybe a picture snuck in. There she is. There she is, uh, Halo Summer Turner, born in Durban in the Republic of South Africa yesterday. So she's a little springbok. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. I feel well indulged. I just had to do that because I fear the wrath of Anna Daniels more than I fear going over a minute or two at the end. Hey, about seven or eight years ago, I was, uh, before we'd even planted Collingwood Park, before, well, we were just one church in one location and we had, used to have two Sunday morning services. It was, it was like in, in January and uh, I was sort of cruising the facility and I went to the men's room, as you do. And in there, coming out of the cubicle, was this person. And, I mean, he, you know, I could have been forgiven for thinking that he may have slept in the cubicle. Because he, he looked like he'd slept under a bridge or something. I mean, you know, he was disheveled. He sort of, you know, his eyes were sort of hanging out of his head a bit. And, uh, and he had dreadlocks that sort of came down to his pockets. And I actually feared that his dreadlocks had their own ecosystem, their own fauna and, and flora in there. And, and he said, he said, how you going, buddy? And I thought, well, yeah, it's a really fake-sounding American accent, dude. But anyway, I shook his hand, said hello, and, then, and I came out and sat down ready for church, and, and I, I, I saw him on the front row. I thought, yeah, you come to church, mate, the first time, you, you know, you don't sit on the front row. You sort of work your way forward. Yeah, you know. And anyway, anyway, we, we, we sing a few songs and Pastor John gets up and introduces our guest speaker for the morning. <laughs> and he was, his name was Stephen Bush, a.k.a. the Burning Bush. He was a rapper from L.A. And he was brilliant. But what about me? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? I'm thinking this guy is a rank outsider. What's he, you know, what's he doing in my toilet? <laughs> but, you know, where there's... And in crowd, there's always outsiders. There's always people on the edge, right? Yeah. You know, there's, when, where there's an in-group, there's people who aren't in that in-group. And God never intended our church, any church, to be exclusive. He intended it to be a big us. Not an us and them, a big us. Yeah. Hey, you guys, are, you guys are going well this morning. That's <laughs> different. The, the much-loved actor-comedian, Robin Williams, has been gone for about four years now, but much of him is, is still with us. And in particular, one quote, which sort of gives us a bit of evidence of his actual pain. He said, people say that the worst thing in the world is to be alone. It's not true. The worst thing in the world is to be with people who make you feel alone. I, I think that's just powerful and true. Don't you? I mean, it should be in the Bible, shouldn't it? I mean, maybe, Pastor Tim, we could revise the canon. <laughs> Proverbs 32. 
and we get to sneak that one in. But there's something about a culture that welcomes you, isn't there? There's something empowering about that. But there's also something about a culture that says, you're not enough. Just stay on the edge. You know, that's not us. Hey, I don't know if you've heard of Brené Brown. I know that many of you have, but she's an American social scientist, a PhD in social scientists, and she took a year to study what human beings need most. It ended up being six years, and she studied a 1,000 people, and her conclusion was that people need connection. They need to feel like they belong. That is the thing that people most need. She's an eminent social scientist. You see her on Oprah. She does TED Talks. And that was her conclusion at the end of six years' research, at which time she took her family back to church after being away for 20 years. So against that background, what responsibility falls to us as a community of faith in terms of people who are outside of that community of faith? I want to discuss that today. I want to start off with a a couple of verses from the book of Colossians just to set the scene, just to give us a framework as to how to work towards people who are outside of our, our community, outside of our little circle here, because there are a lot more of them than there are of us, yeah? So we're going to go into the book of Colossians. We're going to look for a mindset that moves towards inclusion. So the book of Colossians, chapter 4, Starting at verse 6, just a few verses, Paul is writing to the church in Colossians and he says, Give a lot of time and effort to prayer. Always be watchful and thankful. Pray for us too. Pray that God will give us an opportunity to preach our message. Then we can preach the mystery of Christ. Because I preached it, I'm being held by chains. Pray that I will preach it clearly as I should. Now, verse 5, get this. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let the words you speak always be full of grace. Learn how to make your words what people want to hear. Then you will know how to answer everyone. What a great verse. Make, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. There are people in our collective worlds that are not walking with Jesus yet. I like to think of them as that. They're not walking with Jesus yet. They're not walking towards God's purposes yet. They could be defined as the outsiders that that Paul is talking about. Can we be wise towards outsiders? Can we do that? For the first 20 years that I was a Christian, I followed Jesus, the church at large didn't have a great relationship with outsiders. It It was sort of like, you know... The, the walls of the church were here and we were here, the church was here and the outsiders were outside. But that's changed over the last 20 years. I'm happy to say it's, it's got to be, to be really good. We've moved from separation towards inclusion, but it can get better. The church was, used to be seen as like a, a haven, a refuge, where we would come aside from, the, from that awful place out there that we called the world and it would be like asylum seekers making a dash for the embassy gates. Oh, made it inside. Got away from them for a couple of hours. You know, that's the, that's the way we looked at it. But it's, it was never intended to be like that. Paul says, let the words you speak always be full of grace. Does that describe you and me? Ask yourself the question. You only need to look at the presence some Christians have on Facebook to see that it's not an inclusive mindset. Stones thrown at people don't help. Folks, this is a time when our social media presence, our presence everywhere needs to be statesmanlike, needs to be 
full of grace. This morning, I just want to look at two stories. They're both in the book of Acts. The first one lays out Paul's mindset, how he puts this into operation. It's a great story. We want to see how he actually does it himself. He said it, but now let's see how he practices it. The second one will show us the power of how a welcoming environment can actually change a life, can be a catalyst to a big life change. So we're going to look at those this morning. The first one is found in, in chapter 17 of the book of Acts. It's about Paul the Apostle. He finds himself alone in Athens and he's waiting for his two colleagues, Silas and Timothy, to join him. And the people of Athens, are, for the most part, they are idol worshippers. They are people who are outside the community of faith in that time. This, it's a fairly long passage, but it's only two minutes of your life, so don't fret. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both, both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he, gives, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundary of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice the man he is, by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard this about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed them. In that verse, those, those verses, I want you to notice three spaces that Paul moves through. There's three areas where we will encounter people from outside of the faith. The first one is that he reasoned with Jews and God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue. That's like coming to church. Paul was fishing in the hatchery. Okay, He was, he was bound to get people who weren't outsiders there. Uh, he was bound to connect with people. There would have been a couple of maybe few outsiders in that, in that environment, but not many. From there, he moves to the marketplace daily. 
where he reasoned with them in the marketplace. That is, for us, that's representative of our workplace, our school, our uni, maybe even our neighbourhood. That's what, that's what that means. That's the, the marketplace. That's the second place. And the third place is where Paul gets invited to speak. Paul, because of his grace, his eloquence, because he is presenting a new idea, gets invited to speak. And that's, that's us when we've done the hard yards. That's us when we've been diligent. That's us when we've been consistent. That's us when we've earned the right to get into a place to influence people. It might be that you've done well in a job over you know, 20 or 30 years and you've risen to the top. You've been invited to that place. It might be that you are a participant in a sporting club where you've served manfully for, for a long time and you get invited to be an influence in that place. That is what is represented by the Oropagus in, in this instance. The Oropagus was like a debating circle where they just had ideas. And Paul was invited into that because of the way he presented himself, because of his graciousness. And then he goes on to speak with graciousness. He, he goes in and he recognises the context. When we deal with people who are not from the community of faith, that's the first thing we need to know, to recognise the context we are in. Like I, I used to speak in schools. It was part of my job. And, and when I went into schools, I couldn't stand up and preach the gospel as we know it. I had to find another way. That's recognising context. In that context, you're not allowed to go outside the boundaries given to you by that context. So you stay within those boundaries. You show grace. You show uh, awareness of where you are. Recognise the time and place. That's the first thing that Paul does. He recognises context. He goes in and respects the Greeks in his conversation. The second thing I want you to notice is that he connects with them. He finds common ground. He talks about the unknown God. He communicates to connect and not to convince. He communicates so that he may be asked back, and he is asked back at the end of that particular sermon that he delivers. So in communicating to connect, what does he do? He talks about how religious they are. He compliments them on, on their faithfulness to their religions. And then he talks about their interest in different gods, specifically one, the unknown God. Now, he says to them, I even found an altar to the unknown God. What he's actually doing is connecting with the history of that, that particular city, Athens. And he's doing it through this unknown God. I don't know if you know the story behind it, but five or six hundred years prior to this, there was a plague in Athens and they, people didn't know what to do. They'd sacrificed to all of their gods and the plague was still there. So the elders of the city had heard about this prophet who lived on the Isle of Crete. He was, his name was Epinomedes. And so they sent for him and they brought him to Athens to deal with this situation. They thought he would have the answer. And, and he, he, he gave this huge prayer and he said, gather up a whole pile of sheep. And what you need to do with those sheep is, is let them loose and whichever ones graze, leave them alone. But if any actually lie down, I want you to take them and sacrifice them. And so what happened was 
even though it was early in the morning and the sheep were hungry, some of them chose to actually lie down and not eat. And so the Greeks took those sheep and sacrificed them. And everywhere they sacrificed them, this, this prophet from Crete, he got them to put a little sort of like a monument that said Agnostotheo, the unknown God because he was praying to this unknown God. And so they were all around, and it was on the, on the slopes of Mars Hill where Paul was actually speaking. So Paul would have seen plenty of these little things, the unknown God, and so he delves back into the history of the city, and he connects, he finds common ground with the Greeks in Athens. And that serves to actually make him more palatable to them. Instead of choosing to quote from the scriptures, he quotes from one of their poets. That's the way to do it. His reference to an altar is dedicated to an unknown God and he finds this common ground and he moves on from there. He connects, he communicates to connect, not to convince. The third thing is that Paul recognises that he wasn't alone in trying to win them, that there, there had been activity before. He actually says to them, in him we live and move and have our being. Now he's talking to Greeks who are not part of of the believers yet. He's talking to them and he says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. He's talking about the fact that God is close. Jesus said, uh, sorry, Paul said that Jesus fills all in all so that God is actually close. He says that, God is close to you. And in him we live and move and have our being. I don't know if you've ever looked back, but when I first came to Jesus, I I suddenly had brought to my recollection a whole pile of incidents that led up to that situation, dating back like 10 years. See, the Holy Spirit was actually active, drawing me. He He was involved. In him we live and move and have our being. We don't think about the Holy Spirit ferreting around in the next door neighbor's life, trying to move him towards God. We don't think about that, do we? We think that's our domain. We think that belongs to us as believers. But the Holy Spirit is active, drawing people, drawing people towards God, drawing people into a community of faith. And we've got to understand that and and work with that. Paul recognized that he wasn't alone that he wasn't wasn't doing this alone. There had been work that had gone before. The Holy Spirit was busy. Paul references Jesus in his message, but he just doesn't bother to identify him. And he talks about a day of judgment and says that the Greeks should repent of their idolatry, but he could have asked them to repent of a number of things, but he doesn't. He just says, repent of your idolatry, and he just leaves it there, in the air and they say we want to hear you again so he gets a second hearing maybe that's the goal maybe it's not to close the deal maybe it's not to get a notch in our bibles a convert yeah maybe it's not that maybe it's to build connection recognize the context of people's lives and then finally to understand that there's already work being done and it's probably been going on for a long time and you're just a Johnny come lately in the situation. So there's three things to take away. So that's Paul's framework, his framework for approaching outsiders. 
Okay, it's, it's easy there. It's step by step. It's all through uh, Acts chapter 17. So let's see what happens when all of those things come together. And what happens is it's a perfect storm. We're going to read a, an old an, a passage now from uh, Acts chapter 8. It's about the Ethiopian eunuch. And here we see everything that Paul's talked about. It just piles on top of one another and he ends up seeing this guy get baptized. We're going to read this passage and just watch how a big acceptance or a big inclusion has the power to override any exclusion or rejection. Acts chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 26. It says, Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaka, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. Other versions use the more anglicized Candace, which is probably a bit more palatable. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading, uh, reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is a passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water, what can stand in the way of my being baptized? And as he gave the orders to, and he gave the orders to stop the chariot, then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Jesus said that his followers would be a witness to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is that starting to happen. Paul is walking on the road to Gaza. Uh, Philip, sorry, is moved to go on the road to Gaza. And he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch. And this will be ultimately the movement of the gospel back to another continent, to Africa. Philip is one of the early church leaders. So he has this angelic vision to walk alongside this chariot. And he hears this guy talking. The man is described as a eunuch. So let's, let's see what that means. A eunuch is an emasculated man, an odd designation to us, but less so in the ancient world. In most cultures, certain males were picked out. They were selected to be eunuchs. Sometimes they would give their consent, but most times no, as you would understand. They did this because then they couldn't marry and so that they would have lifelong loyalty to the king or the queen of that time and that was very desirable. So it was done at an early age. What that meant was that these, these boys didn't develop like other boys. They didn't produce testosterone. They had no facial hair. You often see paintings of the Ethiopian eunuch and he's got this big beard. No, that, it wouldn't be like that. He would have no beard. He's, he has no testosterone, doesn't produce facial hair. He has a higher voice. 
he is probably a gender-confused individual. Because of this, eunuchs were excluded from certain areas of life. Now, this passage is powerful in its own right by what it says, but it's even more powerful by what it doesn't say. Let me tell you what it doesn't say. The eunuch had just been to Jerusalem to worship. The reason, his own spiritual hunger. So he's hungry. The context is, this is a hungry guy. He's ready, he's ready to, to move in God. That's why Philip can go in so strongly. The Holy Spirit prompts Philip to be there. When Philip asks him if he understands what he's reading, he, he invites him up into the chariot. And the eunuch asks him a question that is just loaded with sadness and, and pathos. He says, who is, the, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Now, given this man's unique identity, it should be easy to see why he was so taken with this particular passage. The image of, of cutting would obviously have significance, and so would humiliation and rejection that was being spoke about in the passage, as well as not having descendants for a man who was incapable of producing descendants. He's asking Philip this question, is the prophet talking about himself or is he perhaps talking about me? Me being the Ethiopian eunuch. Because everything applies to him. Philip responds by telling him about Jesus, who was despised and rejected of men and who was cut and scarred forever and a man who had no physical descendants. Now put yourself in the eunuch's shoes. Because of his position, he's been on the outer of mainstream society most of his life. He's different to other men. He's not robustly masculine. To be a eunuch was to be a breed apart. So he's not part of the in crowd. He's an outsider. He's excluded. His whole life has been characterized by being someone who is different, part of a minority. Now, he's just been to Jerusalem to worship. Did he get to worship? No, he didn't. He didn't. If you serious Bible readers know your Leviticus and your Deuteronomy, you'll know that he couldn't have. There was no way that he could have. For a start, he was a Gentile. In the temple, they had a court of the Gentiles, which was like a secondary place that, that Gentiles, non-Jews, could go into. It's like coming to church here and saying, okay, we've got a nice seat for you in the car park. Okay, you'll be able to hear everything, we'll open the door. That's what it was like. It was like a, a second-class spot for him. And the conversation probably would have gone like this. The Ethiopian eunuch goes to the temple, temple guard and says, I'm a, I'm a eunuch from the court of Candace, the Ethiopian queen, I'm here to worship. And he says, oh, all right, sir, well, we've, we've got this special section for you Ethiopians, you Gentiles, it's over there, over there. You have to go and, and sit in that. You can't go in the main part where us Jews go. You know, hang on, what, were you, what did you say you were again, a unicorn? He says, a eunuch. I said, sorry, you can't go in at all. Because the law said that a, a eunuch could not enter in to the temple, could not enter in to the assembly of worship. So again, again, after being excluded all his life, he's come to Jerusalem to worship, but has undoubtedly turned away because of his racial and sexual identity. He's been excluded from the worshipping community. So against this background, you can feel the full pang of his question to Philip. Look, here is water. 
what can stand in the way of my being baptized? Can I, he's saying, can I, this time, can I be included? And that is the cry of the heart of so many people who are outside. Can I, can I be included? Can I come in and be a part of this? They won't say it, but that's it. Look, here is water. Can I be baptized? Can I be included? I've just been rejected and humiliated again in Jerusalem, but you've told me about a man who, like me, has no physical descendants, a man who has has been cut, a man who has been despised and rejected. Will he accept me? Is there anything that stops me from being part of his kingdom? And of course, there isn't. There's nothing to stop him. And Philip is living in a new day. He's not part of the Old Testament. He's living in a new day. And he gets down out of the chariot and he baptizes the man. And Jesus says yes to a man that has heard no all of his life. And one inclusion overcomes a great exclusion. Yeah? Do you see that? It's ironic that the eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53 because that is the passage all about rejection, all about Jesus taking our rejection, his substitution for our well-being. It's all about that. See, in him we live and move and have our being and all that work had done, had been done prior to Philip coming on the scene. The Holy Spirit was already working. He's reading scriptures that point to Jesus. So he's prime. He's, he's on the edge. He's ripe. And Philip steps in, and there it happens. The problem of rejection is something that that we can face as believers. Even though we're accepted in the in crowd, we're not outsiders, rejection can still surface, and it can still affect the way we are. But the theme here is is substitution. You see, when you follow Jesus, you open yourself up to a a curious exchange of energy. You get his health for our afflictions, his beauty for our ashes, his rejoicing for our sadness, and his righteousness for our iniquity, his goodness for the things that we do badly. We get that curious exchange of energy. Surely he took up our pain, the book of Isaiah says, and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He's talking about us having peace, peace in our mind. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. See, the eunuch saw in Jesus someone who had suffered for all of his suffering. So there was an exchange taking place. A big acceptance overcomes a big exclusion or rejection. If the musicians would like to join me, we're not quite finished yet. I just want to talk to you for a moment about what actually happened when Jesus was on the cross. On the cross, he enters into our psychological calamity. When you feel abandoned by the God who doesn't abandon anyone you need to know that he took upon himself your sense of rejection your sense of insecurity alienation separation disease corruption decay hard-heartedness and rebellion all of that was placed on him so that it can be relieved from us 
he swallows it up and absorbs it into himself, his own broken body, and he spits us out on the other side of Calvary, a brand spanking new creation. That's what happens. That's what happens when the power of the Holy Spirit comes into our life. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 